0: Well, we're going to carry on this morning in First uh, Peter chapter two. This is a continuation from the sermon last week. If you weren't able to hear that, uh, there's lots of different ways you can hear the sermons here: this podcast on Apple and Spotify, and, and they're on YouTube and various things like that. If you can't find them, uh, you can ask Christine in the back; she can help you find your way there. This passage in First Peter, we spent a lot of time here from First Peter chapter one. I'm sorry, chapter two, verse thirteen, through chapter three verse seven related to authority because it's very important and we need to get these things right and we need to spend the time to to get them right. And so we're continuing from the section talking about authority between masters and servants and the way that Peter takes a a sidetrack and goes into speaking about Christ, because when talking about masters and servants, he quickly gets into unjust suffering, suffering for something you don't deserve to suffer for. And instead of feeling sorry for yourself, he teaches us a powerfully important lesson about Jesus and how Jesus suffered unjustly. And we as followers of Christ should expect to suffer unjustly. And we look to Christ as our example as to how to do such things. We're going to uh, go a little bit further in that today and then specifically spend time in verse 24 about what it means to die to sin and live to righteousness. Please stand with me to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human, ins- I'm sorry, uh, verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile and return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So in verse 23, the second part of that, it talks about Christ Jesus entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So when Jesus was persecuted and then suffered and died in his humanity, he is entrusting himself to God that this injustice that is happening, he is trusting that God who judges justly will not forget what has happened here and will judge rightly and he of course does. And so we ourselves, when we suffer unjustly, we are called, as I went into last week, not to take matters into our own hands, not to seek vengeance, but to entrust ourselves to God in unjust suffering. But I know that this brings up a lot of questions, and so I want to hit a couple of areas of application today that I hope will be helpful to you in unjust suffering. The first is not demanding our rights. So our world today is very much about entitlement and what am I what do I have a right to? And whenever something happens to me that I feel like is unjust, the natural proclivity of people is to demand what you are due, to demand your rights in the face of other people. But the Christian life is the opposite of this. In the Christian life, we are called over and over again to die to ourselves. And one of the most important verses about this, a verse that I would encourage you to mark and to memorize, a verse that is on our wall in the house, is Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of us look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. And so when someone comes to us and does something to us, whether it is slandering us or gossiping about us or passing us over for something that we are due, or if we are in a terrible situation, we're wrongly imprisoned, stolen from, whatever it may be, the first thing that we ought to do is not look to what am I due in this situation and going and demanding it. But looking to the other person's interest and trying to see the situation from where they are standing. Because this will allow us to empathize with them in some way and it will allow us ultimately to minister to them in some way. Instead of getting further at odds with a person, it will be the first step to trying to make peace with that person, which is our goal as a Christian. And so initially we are not demanding our rights when we feel like we are unjustly wronged by another person. Well, for me, when I thought about this passage and application of it, the second thing has to do with self-defense. So if someone comes at me and is, is threatening me, do I, do I not have the right to, to defend myself? I mean, Jesus didn't. He laid down his life. Now, that was for a specific situation. I do believe that we have right, uh, we have a right to self-defense. We especially have a right to defend those that are our loved ones, our family, and that is not really what I'm, I'm talking about here. Because I believe that if we are honest with ourselves, we'll quickly realize that the vast majority of the situations that we come into, perhaps all the situations in our life, will not actually involve us defending the physical safety of our person. I understand that can happen, and that we should be prepared for that, and that husbands and fathers should defend their homes but the vast, vast majority of what's gonna happen to you this week and next week and the week after that is not gonna be about that. It's gonna be about somebody saying something to you that upsets you and you wanna just get angry with them and you feel like, I have the right to defend myself. Well, you're not really being attacked. It's really just an argument. And so I want us to set the stage for what is largely going to happen in your life. And if you look at the conflicts that are in your life, most, if not all of the conflicts are like that. And I want to remind you about something that I think is very, very important. We're given specific lists of elder qualifications in the Bible, which means if a person, if a spiritual man in the church is going to rise to the level of being a spiritual leader in the church, they must meet certain qualifications. And one of the specific qualifications is that that person is not quarrelsome. One of the older translations of that, if you go to the King James, is, is not pugnacious. He's not a pugilist. He's not a person that is seeking a fight. He is not a person looking for a fight, but he is a person making peace. As Christians, we are called not to be quarrelsome fighters, but we are called to be peacemakers. In the Gospels, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. We have a name for a quarrelsome person in our time. It's called having a big chip on your shoulder, that you go around looking for a quarrel with someone. You're easily angered, you're easily set off, and if someone wrongs you, you're not about to suffer some wrong injustice. You're gonna strike back at them, and if they yell at you, you're gonna yell back at them louder, and you are going to have your due, and you are gonna get what you're rightfully uh, due. This is not the Christian life, okay? I'm just I'm trying to paint a picture for you here that is a picture of the way that Christ would suffer wrongly in order to minister to another person. I'm going to be very clear that you can't go around with a big chip on your shoulder and be an effective evangelist. It will not work. You cannot talk to people about the sinfulness of their life in an empathetic, in a kind way where they know that you have their good in mind and that you're trying to tell them something that is important for them, that you're not trying to start a fight with them. You're not trying to argue with them. You're trying to help them. And the only way that you can do that is if you have a peaceful heart that actually has compassion and love towards the person that you are speaking with. And you have to be willing, like Christ, to unjustly suffer in order to have that be accomplished. The third aspect of of Application here, which I think is very, very important when we're looking at being willing to suffer unjustly in the way that Christ did, is looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 having to do with lawsuits. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is a, an extended uh, discussion where Paul talks about the Corinthian church about one another dragging each other into court. If you've lived long enough, you've probably been around or involved in some type of a lawsuit where someone says, I am not going to stand for this anymore and we're going to court over this. That I will not be wronged by you. I will take you to court and I will sue you and I will get my vengeance. Paul is explicitly clear at length in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that Christians should not drag each other into court. And I'm telling you this morning that as Christians, we should not be dragging each other into court. That it is, in fact, as Paul says, a disgrace to the church that those who say that they are unified or one in Christ, that they are going to spend eternity together forever in the Lord, are so at odds with each other and so unwilling to lay down their rights to each other that they are going to take each other to an unbelieving court and hire somebody to sue each other. It shows, as Paul says, a weakness in the church, a great spiritual weakness, that First, that people would be so at odds with each other. But secondly, that there's not someone wise enough or with enough authority in the church to help bring peace. What should happen is when we get to some irreconcilable difference with each other in the church, that that is brought to the elders. And that there is enough wisdom and then there is prayer and then there is spiritual guidance to where that we can find an avenue of peace. I would argue to you that there is always an avenue of peace amongst Christians always. And it will always involve dying to yourself in some way and laying down your rights in some way, but because you love Jesus and you love others in this church, there can be peace. And that when we instead sue each other in court, it defames the name of Jesus. When two people say that they're Christians, especially when two like obviously Christian names or Christian institutions are in the name on the lawsuit and they're suing each other, it's just a tragedy. And it shouldn't happen. And so I encourage you this morning to hear these things. That when we are dying to ourselves, let us hear the, the direct admonition of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That it would be better that you be defrauded. That you actually lose the case than to shame the name of Christ in, in an open public court. So those are some aspects of application as to what it means to suffer well when you are suffering unjustly. You know it's not your fault. You haven't done anything, but you are still struggling. There are a bajillion ways this could work out. And hopefully this hit on some things that that may involve your life. If you have a particular uh, issue now or something comes up later... Uh, please bring it to one of the elders that we might be able to talk to you and pray with you and work to help see how it is that the Lord might be at work in your life to help you through the current struggle that you are going through. I'm always here after the service and the elders of this church make ourselves available to help you with such things that you might not struggle alone in something that you feel like is unjust suffering, but that you might understand what God is doing in your life through it. Well, if we carry on in uh, First Peter Chapter 2, verse 24, I would like to camp out there for the rest of our time this morning because it is such an important thing that Christ Jesus bore our sins in his own body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. I just barely mentioned this this past week, but it's too important just just to pass over so quickly. This is what we're called to in the Christian life. This is the transformational aspect of the, tr- of the Christian life. That what we once were, we die to, and we're no longer that way. And we go and we live to righteousness. We live in a different way. And so to understand this, the most clear passage in this is Romans chapter 6. And I'd like for you to stick your finger in First Peter chapter 1 and turn over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 14. Uh, Paul is very, very clear as to the old self, new self, dying to sin, living to righteousness in this passage. It's a passage that I would encourage you to spend time, as Paul is going to say in the passage, considering, that you would consider this passage more than what I just give to you this morning, that you would read it this afternoon, that you would think about it, that you would pray about it, and that you would strive to apply it that you also might do what Christ is calling you to do, which is die to sin and live in righteousness. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Very beautiful passage. What shall we say then? Shall grace abound that we just keep on sinning? And the answer is no. Because if we take seriously what Christ did for us on the cross and the fact that he, in agony, bore our sins in his own body, we're not going to go out and pile on to that. We're going to see the grievous nature of our sin, and we are going to want to die to it. For all those that are in Christ, we are made new in Christ. Old things have passed away and new things have come. The old way that we used to be has been joined with the crucifixion of Christ. And that in that crucifixion, we are no longer enslaved to sin. When we come to Christ Jesus, we are given a new heart. We are given new desires, a new direction. We are united in the resurrection strength and power of Christ and we are free from the bondage of sin. Paul says here that we are no longer enslaved to sin. We understand what it means to be enslaved to something. We cannot get free of it. It just keeps pulling us back in. And before we came to Christ, there were habits and patterns of our life that we could not get free of. No matter what positive thinking we had or what book we read or what pattern we walked in, it kept just drawing us back in because we did not have the power of the Holy Spirit to break free from these things. But in Christ, we are a new creation and we are able to put to death sin. In verse 11, Paul writes this, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Considering is an important word. It means that you think about it for a while. You, you turn it over. You mull it in your mind. And that's hard to do because in this day and age, we live such fast-paced lives. There's something always beeping and dinging and there's always something going off. And, and it just breaks our concentration constantly. But I will argue that you need to, as a Christian, make time for quietness in your life. Like find a way to carve it out and push other things out that you might be able to consider in your mind what has been written about Christ Jesus and what is going on in your life between you and God. And as you consider these things, consider what Christ has done for you, what has been promised to you in the scriptures. And you choose to go out and live your life by faith according to the promises that you have in the scriptures. And a big part of that is dying to sin. As it says in verse 13, we go out from this consideration to act. And we act differently because of what we have considered in our mind. And the first thing in verse 13 that we do is we do not present our members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Which means you don't walk right back into the same trap that you were in before. You don't go right back to the same place. You don't go right back to the same website. You don't go right back to the same friends. You do something different. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are able to do something different that you couldn't do beforehand. And this has to do with dying to sin. But the second part, in the second part of verse 13 here, but you present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And You say, Pastor Rick, what does that mean? Well, it means exactly what it says. And I want to encourage you to literally apply this. That when you wake up tomorrow morning and you spin around and your feet hit the floor, that you would say, God, I want to present myself to you today as an instrument of righteousness. I want to live for you today. I don't want to live like I lived yesterday. I want to live a Christian life today. I'm asking for you to help me to walk in a different way today. Help me to live in righteousness. I'm presenting myself to you and asking you to work this way in my life. And you will begin to see a radical change come over your life when you begin your day every day like that. Instead of just falling out of the bed and just running to the first thing that you can run to, the first text message that comes in or whatever else, The worst being you roll out of bed, turn on the news, and just get inundated with every horrible thing that's happening today, and then you begin your day with that. Begin your day with the truth of Christ Jesus, considering who he is and presenting yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. If we go back to 1 Peter, this is the heart and soul of living in righteousness, That he himself, as it says in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Not that we would be the same as we always were, slightly different, but that we would be radically different. That we would be saved and transformed. And I want to argue this morning that the sweetness and the joy of the Christian life comes in the living for righteousness. The stopping stuff and the dying to sin is absolutely imperative. Casting off the sins that so easily entangle is a necessary part of the Christian life. But just stopping things and not doing things is not enough. It's the living for Christ. It is the seeking after righteousness where the joy and the sweetness of the Christian life comes. And I know it's for me, and I believe for a great many men especially, we're good at duty-bound stuff. We're good at stopping stuff. We're good at, I'm going to die for this. I'm willing to die for this. I'm willing to stop doing things for this. But when it comes to living, like how do I live for something? It becomes a lot harder because it's different. It's, not, it's, it's outside of the normal bounds of duty, and it calls for us to live in such a different way. And I am completely convinced that this living for righteousness cannot be done alone. It is to be done within the community of the church. We are called to live together in community. And as we live for Christ and we seek his righteousness, we need each other. That's why I'm going to, the way I'm going to talk about this living for righteousness is talking through our church covenant. Never done this before, I should have. I apologize. Uh, It is a series of promises that we make to each other when we come into membership in this church. Which simply means committing yourself uh, intentionally to the life of this church. That you're not just here as a consumer, you're not just here as a person passing through, but you are here as a person committed to the other Christians in this church. And that you want to encourage one another in this living for righteousness. And as we do this, we find that we are able to make progress in the Christian life that we could not make before in on our own. Because we need each other. And there are a great many people that have become disillusioned with the church. And so they want to go find community somewhere else. Or create some other better concept of community. And I'll tell you that they will all fail. Because the local church is what God designed for the community fellowship of people. This is what God, that's why the church is still here. And that's why various other forms of community come and go. But the church remains and it will remain until Christ Jesus comes again. And so, instead of getting rid of it, I encourage us to press into it, that it might be the beautiful thing that it can and should be. So, when we're looking at the breakdown of the church covenant, if you don't have one or you would like to have one, they're they're available in the back. You can grab one on the way out, or they're also available on the website. The first statement is is just about our salvation and, and our common salvation and our statement of baptism that we have followed after Christ in baptism but it gets next to a statement on unity and peace. Unity and peace. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The the blessing of the church will never be a blessing if we are not unified. That's why it starts there. If we are all at each other's throats because we are piling up offenses against each other and we're angry with each other and we're gossiping against each other and we're backbiting each other and and there is no unity and there's no peace. None of this is going to be a blessing. And all of us have been uh, in places where church was characterized by that. And so there's a reason why this church covenant begins and ends with the idea of church unity and us passionately striving to reconcile with each other dying to ourselves, looking to others' uh, needs before our own, that we might have a church that is reconciled first to Christ and then to each other. Because we earnestly love Jesus and we earnestly love each other. And we don't want there to be things that are between each other. So we keep pressing in to, to find that unity and that peace. The third paragraph of the church covenant speaks to the tone of the community life of the church. we walk together in brotherly love, exercising affectionate care and watchfulness, admonishing, encouraging, love, care, nurturing, encouraging, admonishing. Man, those are great words. These are words that we want to be true of communities that we are a part of. And you are a part of taking that up, that you go and you earnestly care for another person. Nurturing is an interesting word. It means you're kind of like cultivating something. You think of like a little tomato plant that if you don't water it right, and you don't put it in the sun right, it's going to to dry up and die. Well, the, the relationships in the church can be fragile and start out small like that, and they need to be nurtured and strengthened. But the admonishing and encouraging language is also very important, that specific language. Our day and age loves to use the word affirming. We don't have that word here. We have biblical words of admonishment and encouraging. So to admonish someone, which is one of the, 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 ta, uh, the uh, things that the scriptures are useful for, is to help a person understand where they are wrong. Now, that doesn't come off well if you're not a person's friend already, and that person doesn't understand that you love them and care about them. However, the Proverbs are very clear. Blessed are the wounds of a friend. Like when a friend, a person that you know loves you, know has your best interest at heart, comes to you and says, you really need to look at this. Like this is not good. You need to to change here. And you'll be wise to hear your friend admonish you and make a change because they're trying to help you. This is the nature of what we're trying to do in this church, that we love each other so earnestly that when we come to a brother or sister that we have made a relationship with and we say, I need to talk to you about something. Like this is off track and I'm trying to help you see this. And I'm encouraging you to go in this way that God would have you to go. It helps us all grow and be better. To just affirm someone where they are, is, you're not going to see that language in the Scriptures because the Scriptures are not affirming us where we are. They're saying, you were a sinner and you repented from that and now you're making progress and we're all looking to Jesus and we are worshiping Him and we're trying to strive after Him. So we are not affirming sinners in their sin where they are. We are trying to admonish and encourage one another in a tone of community and love and care and nurturing. The next paragraph talks about assembling, assembling together. There's a reason why we're here together this morning. If you've been with this church long, you've been a part of the struggle of out in the field and in the Pennington's backyard and in here when like we weren't supposed to be in here and all kinds of things that we struggled through to try to be together because Zoom calls stink and distance learning is no good. Like it is a struggle. There is something very important about being here together with each other. And actually hugging someone's neck and actually praying with someone in person and actually going and eating a real meal together and actually seeing the nonverbals of a person's face. Like these things are essential. They're not just good, they're essential. And as Christians, we must fight to remain together and come together in both large and small groups. It matters. Um, this is a struggle in our day and age. We do uh, record this service, and it's put out live, but I I just, I always have like a, uh, you know, I just, it's not the same, okay? It's not the same, and I've been confronted with this very real, in a very real way recently when, you know, with, when people struggle with deep things, and their only connection with church has been watching someone online that won't come visit them when they need to be visited. They won't come pray for them when they, they have no real connection with anybody, You need to be connected with real people in the real church, so that when you struggle, you have someone that you can reach out to and knows your name, and will pray with you and care for you and watch over you. Praying for one another is next. Participation in putting your arm around someone and asking God to intervene in their life. I encourage you in a habit that a friend of mine instructed me in, and it changed my. It really it changed my life in ministry he would say, you should just pray for someone now. Like, don't tell them that you're going to pray for them and then forget to pray for them. Just stop and put your arm around them and say, can I pray for you right now? And he used to always pray for me right right in the moment. And it just changed me. It, it really, and I, now I do that all the time. But those of you who think, I, I didn't used to always do that. I do that now because of the influence of this person. And I encourage you to do that with each other. When you see someone is heavily burdened and they ask you to pray for them, ask, is it okay if I prayed for you right now? And you just put your arm around them and you stop and you pray for them right then. That's what we're doing here in the church. We're asking God to intervene in each other's lives. The next paragraph has to do with the nurturing and care of our children and our young people. It is absolutely essential that we care about the next generation. And that we seek to evangelize and reach our children for Christ. It is our prayer in this church that not a single one of our children will be lost. And that the wayward prodigal children that are represented here would come back to Christ and that they would come to know him. And it is absolutely important as a part of your physically being here that your kids hear about the gospel from someone other than just you. When they come in and they hear about the gospel from another young person that's their age or an older person or their teacher or their small group leader and everybody like, wow, my parents aren't crazy. Like there's a lot of other people that believe these same things and look at the good things that came in their life. And this is important. And so we are committed to care not only for our own children, but also for the children of our brothers and sisters in Christ. The next paragraph has to do with unity again. Rejoicing together that when something good happens to another person in this church, we're not jealous and covetous of what happened in their life. We rejoice with them. But in the hard things of life, we bear one another's burdens. And I cannot emphasize this enough. If we put a big old barbell up here and stacked a giant pile of weight on it to where no one person could pick it up, even the strongest of you couldn't pick it up. But if we then disassembled it into all its different plates and handed it out to the people of this church, we could carry that weight a long way. And that's what it means to bear one another's burdens. There are all kinds of burdens related to this church right now in this place, Hard things emotionally, physically, financially that people are going through and they cannot literally bear up under them by themselves. And they need other people here to help bear those burdens. And I need you to understand that I have no cape. I am not Superman. Like I cannot bear all the burdens of all the people in this church. We have to bear each other's burdens. I want to hear from you. I want to pray for you. But I can only do as much as any other person can do. And so we need to get involved with each other's lives in real ways to where we do a number of things. I would say first that we observe each other. Like you really do observe another person, which by the way has to do with putting away selfishness and looking to the interests of others. You're not so consumed with your own self that you're oblivious to the needs and burdens of other people around you. But then you ask people, when observing another person, you see, like, there's something not right here. Like, there's something that you go a little further. Like, are you okay? Like, you don't seem to be okay today. Is there is there is there something I can help you with? And you get it out there. But then the other is, the next, the third step has to do with the other person. And the humility to tell somebody, yes, I am struggling. Yes, like, we have this physical need, this financial need. I have this emotional need that you are trusting enough to open something of yourself to tell another person that I need help here. And then we as a church and as individuals act. If it's something that you know that you can just yourself act and do something about, do it. If it's something that's bigger than you, then that's when you get the rest of this church involved. And we get in there and we meet the needs of a person and we come around them. There's never been a need in this church that's been expressed that we haven't been able to meet that need through the people of this church. And I believe that's the way it should be and the way that it can be when we are striving after each other in Christ. And next gets into holiness. And then evangelism, yeah. missions, uh, Clay was just play, praying this morning, we have uh, opportunity of mission trips. I'm thankful that we've never sent out a mission trip that didn't have a full roster because we should be willing to uh, sacrifice of ourselves, go get a passport, use some of your annual leave to go on a mission trip. That, that's always a great conversation around the office. what did you do on your trip? I went to here. What? Why did you do that? Well, I did it for the sake of Jesus, and I want people to know Christ, and that's great. Like, that's a really interesting conversation. Giving is here, joyfully and sacrificially. Uh, I think it doesn't, um, it's not missed on anyone that we don't pass a plate in this church, because I don't want your money, and God doesn't want your money. God wants your soul, and he wants you to have a heart that's free from the love of money, and so, yes, it's right to give towards the work of the Lord. And part of being a, 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 a participating member of this church is to participate in the financial needs of this church. But every single dollar that's given to this church is given joyfully and freely by the people of this church because they want to participate in what is happening here. To help the poor and the needy, we have a, a direct benevolence fund that is here that is used for all kinds of different things. So all these are part of this. And if I go back to the scripture we talked about earlier, this is about living unto righteousness. When we put to death sin in our life and we say, Lord God, I want to be a, just a totally different person. I want to not live the way that I used to live. I want to live in a different way. It's going to start with personal decisions, but it's going to quickly get you involved in the lane of the church. And you're going to begin to live for Christ in the community of the church with other Christian people going in the same direction. And by the grace of God, we're going to help each other. Let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And I pray, God, that you would help us in seeing this beautiful passage about Christ. There's so much to learn here about your character and how you suffered well. And, Lord, in that suffering, you did not demand your rights or your, your way. But there in the Garden of Gethsemane, you lay down yourself and say, not my will but yours be done. And you went and fulfilled completely the will of God the Father to bear our sins in your own body that we might not go on in sin, but that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Lord, help us to understand these things. Help us to live these things out. And I pray for every person that may not know you as a Savior in this place today, that they would put their faith and trust in you. They would be convicted of their own sins and turn away from them that they might live for you. And those of us that know you as Savior, Lord, that we would just be stirred up in these things. And that even tomorrow morning, that when we get out of the bed and we turn around and our feet hit the floor, that we would offer ourselves as instruments of righteousness unto God that we might live for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.